Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Mrs. H.H. Leonards, the author of Rosa Parks' Beyond the Bus, Life Lessons and Leadership. How are you doing today, Mrs. Leonard? I am honored to be talking with you, so I am doing great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Tell us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this project. I was reared in the Midwest and came to D.C. because I wanted to help my country. And when I turned 65, I asked my board because I head up a nonprofit here in Washington um, called the O Museum and the Mansion. And I asked my board how we could together make the museum sustainable. And they said, you need to tell your story about Mrs. Parks because nobody knows it. Also up until that point, no one really knew she had lived here for 10 years because I was asked to keep her privacy. So I never thought to write the book. And then the, we were honored to be put on the African-American trail because of her spending a decade here. And the Library of Congress came to that unveiling with the mayor of Washington and said, you really should write your story. And so I looked at them and said, okay. So that's how it came to being. I'm a child of the fifties. So as a child growing up, you didn't speak unless you were spoken to. And I would never have thought to write the book if the people from the library hadn't said I should. So bless them. Yes, it is an amazing book. Let's start by 1992. What happened to Mrs. Parks with the attack? Uh, She had been brutally assaulted in her home. They um, got her to the hospital and the news report said that she was released from the emergency room immediately, Um, but she was there for weeks. She was so badly assaulted that her pacemaker was dislodged. And yet being in the state she was, she made sure that the press didn't know she was there because she didn't want the children of the world to be afraid of being in their home and being assaulted like she had as a small girl with the Klan. So it tells you how deep she was to be able to have that happen. And she, when she started to get better, she said she'd never go back to the home that she was in where she was assaulted. She had no money. Um, and she didn't know what she was going to do. And someone called, uh, and asked if I would help her. But at the time I didn't, they said her name, but I didn't know who she was. And from the urgency of their voice, I just said, whenever she's out of the hospital, she can come and stay with me at no cost because we had a very robust artist and heroes and residence program where we give free rooms out to those in need. And we've been doing that since 1980. Whatever happened to her attacker, Joseph Skipper? She filed charges and uh, testified in court, and he went to jail. Um, She forgave him, but she also said, I will never forget. She felt it was important that she stand up and do the painful thing of sending him to prison because women should not accept what happens to them. Now, Mrs. Parks was there at your home. Can you tell the audience about 
how she really was about her hands. I thought that was amazing. She was extraordinary and she had creator hands. If you look at any of the pictures of her hands, she always tried to hide them. She wore gloves to hide them, but when she took her gloves off, they were so expressive and she could channel through her hands what she was thinking. She was such a powerful soul. Um, and many times on the afternoons, we'd have tea together and we'd just hold hands and I could feel what she was thinking. Today, when I'm most troubled, I remember those images of us holding hands because I feel her now channeling through me. She was that extraordinary. Now, she, she had no children, but she really loved children. She loved them so much. And she also knew that they were our future. So she, even though she spent time with very famous people, she spent most of her time with children because she felt that if she could get her message across that love is all that matters, that they could affect change as they grew up and had their own children. Now, you refer to her as an influencer. How did she continually influence people? She didn't speak until she thought about what she was going to say. So sometimes it would be two to three minutes before she said something. But when she said it, it was in short and simple words that anyone could understand. And if she had lived today with the social media, she would be tweeting six times a day with her messages um, because she was so extraordinary to be able to simplify the meaning of life into simple steps that you could take. So in my book, I, I, I talk a lot about that. She's more timely today than she was in 1955. And what she did in 1955 was pretty extraordinary. But her influence started in the 1930s when she began documenting rape victims, both men and women in Alabama. Talk about courage. Yes. I don't think people understand her mixed racial background. Tell us about that. She was very proud of her mixed heritage. She was white, black, and Native American. Those combinations obviously came from a lot of pain um, because I'm sure being slaves, uh, to get to where she was, many of her ancestors had been raped. Um, but she was very proud, but it also meant that she never quite belonged in any one group. Um, so she understood discrimination in all forms from a very early age. And as she worked through the different things that she did throughout her life, she came to believe very quickly that her purpose was in human rights, that we should all work to be together as one group, not split up into many factors. So her message then is as strong today. And she yeah. felt that love is all that matters and that the laws are going back, will go backwards. She predicted what's happening today. She told me so many different times that if we don't pay attention to changing people's hearts, the laws will roll back. Really? So, yes. So she's given me the roadmap to the future. Now, you were 44 when she moved in with you. Yes. Tell us how, how that impacted your life. The gentleman that brought her to me, his name was Willis Edwards, would continually tell me that I didn't understand how important she was 
to the future and to me until much later in my life. Um, and when you're living it, you don't understand. But everything I did from the moment I met her to today is based on the lessons she taught me. And anytime I veer away from those lessons, something happens that's huge that brings me back into focus. And as I really firmly believe that Mrs. Parks channels that energy through me. And my purpose is to teach others what that is so they can be channeled by her also. Now, tell us about Mrs. Parks on the bus and James Blake. When he died in 2005, what was her response after he died? It was pretty extraordinary. Um, I don't remember the words exactly, but, but when asked um, what her response was, I can't remember the words exactly, but it was pretty impactful. Absolutely. Now, you know, I, I was reading about her and Mamie Teal. Was that one of her close friends too? Yes, and Mamie visited her frequently here. And the two of them used to sit on the balcony uh, that Mamie's, the room that Mrs. Till Mobley stayed in, and they would hold hands in the afternoon after tea also. They were so cute together, looking at the street below and having wonderful conversations. But Mrs. Park said that really her son is what changed her life and brought focus to what she did, and that it, the images of him were so firmly in her brain and in her heart when she was asked to move to the back of the bus. And she reached out to Mrs. Mobley and they became friends after that because she was so moved. She said she wouldn't have had the strength if it wasn't for Emmett Till. Now, you know, she talked about when women rode the bus at the end of the line, they would be raped. What what impact do you think this had on her life with riding the bus later? Uh, people and the press continually have written that what she did was planned. It was never planned. She was looking down, fumbling for change to get on the bus when she stepped up. When she was already on the bus and had her money ready was when she realized who the bus driver was. She said if she was on the ground and seen his face, she would never have stepped on that bus because of memories of this particular driver. Now, when a reporter came to the museum, Mrs. Parks refused to talk with this reporter. The reporter came from D.C. to California to interview Mrs. Parks. Actually, she came to interview me on what it was like living with Mrs. Parks. Okay. And we had talked on the phone before she arrived. And then when she um, saw who that I was white, um, she left the room and came down about 15 minutes later and said she couldn't interview me anymore because she thought I had been black. And uh, um, we thought it was a joke, Mr. Willis and myself, and it wasn't. And I felt so badly for her because I understood the position she was in. She was very embarrassed. Um, but we all learned lessons from that. Anything in life that happens to you, you, you have to just understand that things are meant to happen in a certain way. And what is God trying to teach me? 
So we had um, long conversations. We became good friends. Mrs. Parks's comment about it was that it was um, a shame that people saw color and divided things into that category or any color, any category, whether it's um, your religion, your age, that we should all be together in one race. And she said that to teach the lesson, she wished she had funds to create White Enterprise Magazine and she would be the publisher and Mr. Willis Edwards would be the editor. And then she would come out with a few of those and then she would come out with, we decided to make this enterprise magazine where our staff is integrated, the stories are integrated and we're all in this together. This is about the human race. Did you have other incidents where it was difficult for people to realize that you were helping Mrs. Parks. I never viewed myself that I, I viewed myself as her friend and her and and she was my mother. And I never viewed myself as helping her because it was like we were one family. We were and you never view your family as helping it. It's a two way street. Um, so I, I never I never thought about that before. But reading this book, you can see all of the helpful things you did for her. Can you tell us about Mrs. Park's extended family? Um, meaning all the people that she adopted and made her own? Yes. They were of different ages, different religions, different races. She felt it was so important that she learned about everybody's religion and that she brought them into the AME church to learn from her and she would learn from them. But she traveled the globe learning about religions because she wanted, she felt that as long as we believed in something higher than themselves, that was all that was important. So um, she had a huge family and it wasn't until much later that she understood that all the children of the world were hers. And she's talked a lot about that. Now, let's go back and look at her education. She was educated in Mrs. Miss White School. Tell us about that. In Alabama, if you were Black, boys were taken out of school in the third grade and girls were taken out in the fifth grade. They did not want them to learn or learn how to read or write because then they'd lose the population of people that um, took, were enslaved. Um, so that it was, her mother was a teacher and her mother got her into Mrs. White's school, which had a huge impact on her. But every few years she had to drop out of the school to take care of her family. So it wasn't until she was 23 that she actually graduated from high school. So her she felt education, there was nothing more important than education and she was persistent but she had to go to work to provide for her family. Her mother was ill, her grandmother got ill, her brother was ill, and she became the person that was took care of them and also worked. And she went to the Rosenwald School. Yes, and it was um, an extraordinary experience because at that time, all classes learned together as one. There was no grades by age. It was the older children taught the younger children and the younger children taught the other older children but she firmly believed in that. Um, and she said one of the most impactful things that at school that happened to her was when Mr. Rosenwald 
visited the school and he told them that he was the president of Sears and Roebuck, but that Roebuck was African-American. And when the children heard that, they thought there was hope for them too. Now, she had the death of her brother, her mother, everybody in her immediate family was dying quickly in succession. How did she deal with that? She was of sound mind to understand that she was not able to take care of herself. And she actually checked herself into a nursing home so she could be cared for um, so that she would survive. Um, she was probably there a little over a year. And during that time, she healed by making the decision to start her Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute, where she taught children from the inner city like she had been taught at Mrs. White's school. That gave her the strength and the hope to continue. And every time something horrible happened to Mrs. Parks, she followed the same pattern. And it's one of the things I talk about through, that weaves throughout the book, that when bad things happen to you, step back, heal, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and then come out stronger than ever. And I watched you do that on numerous occasions. So the last 10 years of her life were the strongest, most impactful years. She got so much accomplished in that time because again, she stepped back and healed. Now, she was very uh, influential in the artists in residential program because of her brother. Tell us about that. I'm not sure about your question, but I love your questions are really deep. I really appreciate them. But this one, I don't quite understand. Well, her brother came back from, I think it was the army. Right. Now I get it. Okay. So after she was brutally assaulted, she finally understood what her brother had suffered in World War II with PTSD. So she spent a lot of time meeting with soldiers who had PTSD and telling them privately and in groups how she dealt with it. So she could bond with the soldiers and help them. And she said her biggest regret was not understanding it the way she did so that she could have helped her brother more with his issues. Now, I thought this was of interest. She had friends from Mrs. White School who came to visit her. Uh, and she had this real thing about toxic people. What, what was her whole thing about staying close to her elementary school friends, but yet staying away from toxic people? She was one smart woman. And she was extremely loyal, but she also understood that in order to survive, she needed to cut ties with people that used her fame for their own benefit. So, now, yeah. At age 82, she started swimming. Tell us about that. <laughs> How extraordinary is that? Black people were not allowed to swim in any pool or river or lake that white people utilized. So they didn't learn to live. So she wanted to show children on many levels that at any age you can learn new things. So she used such a magnificent 
metaphor for being together as one by learning how to swim. Now, when you travel with Mrs. Parks, what were some of the things she packed? I, I didn't hear the words. One of the things she what? Packed in her bags. What were some of the things she Oh, packed? my goodness. She never packed lightly. So I would take a little carry-on and she would take four and five suitcases filled with shoes and dresses and gloves and her wonderful hat collection. She never wanted to be seen casually. She felt it was really important that she dressed properly so that no one could use her appearance against her in any way. Now, she had a really good definition of family. Do you uh, recall how she defined family? Family was being part of the community, taking care of anyone that had less than you did. Teaching love is all that matters. Uh, this was an extraordinary experience. And she never stopped to thank people. When she was traveling, she always took the time to thank the person that was going through, you know, checking identity and going through the machines uh, at the airports. It, it was amazing. And I thought this was interesting. When she came to the home, she decided on the smallest bedroom she was very modest and humble. And it was about three years before I had the courage to say, Mrs. Parks, when we showed you the, the rooms in the house, why did you choose the smaller room? And she looked at me and again, thought for a while and said, oh, Mrs. Elaine Steele is much more important than I am. And the look on my face, she said, you have to understand, I'm Mrs. Rosa Parks, but Mrs. Steele makes me real. And that, again, is an example of how authentic she was and how she was always thinking of somebody else, never herself. Tell us about the rap music and Mrs. Park and what happened with this rap music situation. So my son was uh, very much into rap music. And he came to me and said that Outkast had, had uh, written a song that was on the radio about Mrs. Parks. And he felt it was um, not appropriate because it said cuss words and Mrs. Parks would never accept those words be spoken around her. So I told him he should go and tell Mrs. Parks. So he invited his best friend um, and the two of them went and, and talked to her. And Mrs. Park said, let me see, hear the song. And my son Z said, oh, no, Mrs. Parks, it's, uh, it says bad words. And she said, well, then if you could give me the music, I'll listen to it when you're not around. <laughs> they went and got their little cassette and gave it to her. And she sued Outcast for using her name inappropriately. And ultimately, she won the case. Now, she moved to Detroit to be closer to her brothers and the brothers' children. What happened when she moved to Detroit? Uh, she could not find a job. Her husband could not find a job because people were afraid to hire her um, because they thought, she, here comes trouble. Um, and so she had to, she went to Hampton, Virginia and 
and worked as a housekeeper um, in order to send money home to her family so they could eat. Do you think people realize the struggle that she had after 1955? Absolutely not. They think that somebody that is famous has it all and they don't understand that that's not necessarily true, um, that everyone struggles. Yeah, she never had money in her entire life. If she was paid for anything, it all went back to help other people. Um, and those are the kinds of people that you should center your life around because those are the people that are really care about the heart and soul of people. Now, she received the Presidential Medal of Honor by former President Bill Clinton. And then she received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Tell us about that experience of Mrs. Parks after she received those high awards. She said that she was honored to receive them, but it wasn't about the awards. It's about every chance you're given in life to tell about your mission and your vision and your values. You have to say the words yes in order to get that across. So she viewed those as opportunities to tell people about racism, to tell people about how to solve problems, to how to live. So it was opportunities to help other people is how she viewed it. It was never about herself. Now, she had no money and no insurance. And I think that's very important to describe how she was living with no income her last years. Uh, well, she, she did get paid on occasions to speak, but again, it didn't go into her coffers. It went in to help educate children through her institute so that she was the richest person in the world in spirit, but she had nothing in her bank account. Now, she suffered a stroke on her last trip to Detroit. She passed on October 24, 2005. Can you tell us about what occurred or what you found out concerning warrants? Concerning, I didn't hear the word warrants? Yes. Oh, um, after she died, I think the state of Alabama um, absolved her of the warrants for her arrest, which was ironic. Um, if that was what your, your question is. Yes. Yes. Now, there were three funerals. Tell us about those. The, um, I was a pallbearer in Montgomery, Alabama, in Washington, D.C., at both uh, the church and on the Capitol, and then in Detroit. Each funeral was totally different, and they were masterminded again by Mr. Willis Edwards. Um, the, the funeral in Montgomery was her close friends and associates. There was one politician there, Condoleezza Rice. The D.C. funeral was mostly politicians. The funeral in on the Capitol, she was the first woman that had her body lay in state, was for everybody to come and pass through, and it was very, very emotional. And then the funeral in Detroit was every famous person on the planet. It was supposed to last three hours. It lasted eight and a half hours. But it was also quite fitting for such a grand but humble woman. Tell us about the transporting of Mrs. Parks, the captain who- um... oh, Amazing. 
uh, Southwest Airlines paid for her body to go between the three cities and leaving Montgomery was very emotional. And the captain of the airplane came over the loudspeaker and said he was the first African-American pilot to fly. He was so proud to be on board and he tipped, I get teary eyed <laughs> just talking about, it. he tipped the wings of the plane down in a grand salute to her as we left. Uh, I don't think anyone talked on the plane for the most of the trip back to, with her body to Washington. It was so powerful. You talk about Mr. Willis in the book. How was he so influential in arranging for her to stay with you and being in her life? He was uh, extraordinary. And it was all about serving Mrs. Parks and her mission. He had been um, dying in a hospital in Los Angeles of AIDS. And Mrs. Parks visited him and went and again reached out and held his hand and told him, Mr. Willis, Mr. Willis, please get better, please get better. He only weighed 80 pounds at that point. Um, you have to help me. Um, and she repeated it, repeated it. And one week later, he left the hospital and devoted the rest of her, his life to her. So that story is exceptional and extraordinary. The power of her hands, the power of who she was. And um, when she had been assaulted, he flew in from Los Angeles and found out about us and made sure everything happened in the sequence it did. He was the one that really was responsible for her medal, responsible for her meeting with the Pope um, in St. Louis, everything and her funerals. What is the message you want to leave the reader with after they finish this great book? That you too can become Mrs. Rosa Parks, that, that you don't need money to start a movement, that you can instill hope in other people through your exemplary behavior and your focus on helping other people. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you're gonna be working on, Mrs. Leonard? I am working on a project called 51 Steps to Freedom, of which Mrs. Parks is a, a part of. It'll be the first connection of African-American his, uh, history in Washington that focuses on equality and justice. It's a very exciting interactive program that we're creating. Well, I'll be looking forward to hearing more about that. And again, you can get the book, Rosa Parks, Beyond the Bus, Life Lessons and Leadership by H.H. H. Leonards. Thank you so much, Mrs. Leonard, for being on this podcast. I loved talking to you. Thank you.